Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Hi there, you're listening to a multi-part episode, so be sure to tune in and subscribe to catch all of this series of episodes to fully experience this topic. Hey Terry, how's this going? Great, Yoni. How are you? I am doing well, Brooke Hashem. Uh, so, um, it's, it's been a little while since we talked, but we're still on season two of Some of Your Bites. And so, our listeners have an idea of time frame where we are while we're recording. Yesterday was Super Tuesday. I'm, you'll have to explain it to me as we talk, because I'm still not falling in all on that. But uh, give, given the Super Tuesday, given the elections going on in Israel... Given my recent um, piece expanding on the concept of U.S. nationalism and then uh, the events in the coronavirus, it's uh, like a State of the Union address. So let's let's get to it. Um, let's go ahead and start with the easy bits. I am not in the know on American politics when it comes to party battles and those types of things i get what the news feeds say like as far as i i read the time of israel and i i read a couple other overseas things as well as tech news that cover it from a middle ground i don't really dive into much popular news media and so i i'm not at the forefront and i have an idea of some of the candidates and i know how some people in my community feel about candidates and how i feel about some candidates on some areas not fully but that's really the majority of it. So why don't you go ahead and give me a snapshot. What is Super Tuesday? Super Tuesday is, uh, I think if there are 17 states that on Super Tuesday have their primaries. Okay. Uh, And in those primaries, as you know, these are all Democratic primaries now that we're talking about because the Republican primaries are run separately and I don't think they've even started their season because they've got an incumbent. So all they do is kind of sit back and make jokes and laugh and watch the Democrats fumble over themselves. But the uh, Super Tuesday is that Tuesday this time of year when that many states, I think the number 17, do their Democratic primary voting. Uh, Just for full disclosure, I've already voted mine. I did mine by mail. Florida isn't in the primary in Florida hadn't occurred yet, but you can vote early by mail. So I've already done mine. And we'll get around to who I voted for. I don't mind being public about that. But that's that's the event of the week. It's actually the event of this quarter. Um, it wraps up the first quarter of the calendar year, and there's only about five months left, I think, until the November runoff. Okay. So that's the nature of uh, Super Tuesday. Uh, the real race, however, is between Sanders and the rest of the field. <laughs> I get that. That that, that I can track with. (laughs) Yeah, that's really what's going on. I mean, Sanders represents what I think uh, people would have to to know a little history here to understand what is meant by a New Deal Democrat. Yeah. Harking back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, where Social Security came from, Workers' Progress Administration, lots of social programs. Uh, History has it that Uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, um, coming out of the Depression, feared revolution. He really thought 
that the country was going to get torn apart by a violent revolution. He believed that in, in his heart. So he became a very progressive liberal Democrat and instituted all those programs, and they were so successful. He's the only president that's ever served three terms. Um, well, I think it helps that they made a law after that. Say again? I think it helps that they made a law after that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, Some of the disparities are striking. I'll come back to that as we get further into the conversation. Um, I've got a pop up here. Hang on a second. Get rid of it. There we go. Um, the reason I say it's a Sanders versus everybody race is there were, I mean, had, I don't know how many. There was Bloomberg, Warren, Buttigieg, Amy um, Klobuchar, Klobuchar, and two or three others. Uh, now, Bloomberg, Klobuchar, and Buddha Judge have all dropped out now. Yeah. After after yesterday, after Super Tuesday, because they just didn't make a showing. Sanders had a terrific momentum going into Super Tuesday, but Biden kind of ran away with the Super Tuesday delegation okay. delegates. It's all about how many delegates candidates acquire through these primaries. There are thirty-eight. 3,980 delegates, I think. So whoever gets half of those, if any candidate can get 1,991 delegates prior to the convention, they supposedly automatically become the candidate for the party. So that's why this is very important because there's a boatload of delegates, yeah. not candidates, boatload of delegates on these, these primary tickets. California is one of the biggest ones. They have like 400 delegates. I mean, and, and but Biden, of all things, is carrying the South. That makes sense South. to me. Does it? Yeah. How so? Because so, it's, um, well, you really have two main candidates, in my opinion, when it comes to Democratic Party. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm nonpartisan. So I don't get a vote in these primaries. But I, I know some basics of these characters. And I think that everybody was getting sick of the Jew war between Sanders and Bloomberg. And I, I feel like I have a right to say that being Jewish, but the, the Jewish audience was definitely like, seriously, neither of you really have ever focused on your Jewishness before. You're just using it to try to up one another. But that aside, your real two candidates were Biden and Sanders. Sanders, he's tracking right now. He's anti-establishment. He represents a lot of the things that the millennial generation wants and that a lot of people stick with government wants. And a lot of his platform is, I like what's on his platform for a lot of things, okay? I mean, what he's asking for is what the needs of the people are. So that resonates, but he's rogue and he doesn't have the clout to back up what he's wanting to do. Whereas Biden, he is establishment. He's been there. He's done it. And he's and specifically with the South, he's actually he's built up relations in, with his Southern voters. And I think that helps in that area. But people, I think when looking at Sanders versus Biden, I think people want Sanders, but they go with what's safe. What they believe to be safe. Well, yeah, I mean. Not, 
I I can't comment too much on Biden. Really, I'm I'm not a political commentator. I don't know him personally. Well, what I do know is that he's not as harmful as Sanders is to the U.S. American politics system. Harmful it, or harmful much threat? Yeah. Both. I mean, I, I I in regards to the system as it has been, the capitalist, as you've put it in some of your blog posts, the capitalist fascist system. Yeah. In that regards, Sanders is quite harmful to it. Oh, he's a threat. He's a, he's a direct and, threat. But Biden's kind of all bark, no bite when it comes to that. He's not going to upset the system. By and, no so, and, and so I think a lot of people are like, okay, let's just do status quo for right now. I think the focus is let's just win the election. Not necessarily get what we want, but just win it because they don't want Trump to be in again. Well, so you're saying that Biden is the better anti-Trump vote in a lot of people. Not necessarily. I, I think he's the safe vote. Interesting. Interesting. People don't necessarily like wearing seatbelts, but they keep you from the car accidents. <laughs> I'm not going to even go with that metaphor. I'm not even going totally to go fine. with that analogy. Um, I mean, he's, he's done plenty of insert foot here moments in mm-hmm. his entire campaign and it looked like he fell into the background but when i heard that he came out on top i was like yeah that makes sense people are uncertain right now we have turmoil going on in the government and we have turmoil gone on overseas we have while we may just have recently maybe negotiated peace with the taliban we still have soldiers overseas we're still in wars and we're dealing with north korea and we're dealing with iran and now we're dealing with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and people are scared and people are panicking and Biden is something safe and familiar. It's your blankie at night. Maybe your blankie at night, but he's not my blankie at night. I'm not not saying that I'm not saying that he I'm not saying any of the candidates are my blankie at night. You're right. You're right. I keep projecting onto you what you're describing as the general attitude. I I, at least what I'm at least what I think I'm seeing is that Let's have something safe and something known instead yeah. of something unknown and radical and different. Well, now, you're selling Sanders pretty short. He's been in Senate and Congress for like 30 years. That may be the case. But for almost all that time, he was independent. Well, that's true. And for and how, long was Biden, how, long, how long was uh, Bloomberg a Republican? I'm not sure. About four months ago. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, I do know. The Bloomberg thing was really just, it's a competition between businessmen. It sounds like one of those deals, like they're sitting at the table playing poker and Trump's like, well, how about I'll run for president and get it. Then Bloomberg's like, oh, well, then I'll win from you the election. And it was just a little duel right there. That, that's really all it seemed like was, well, we had the, the businessman Republican who really isn't a Republican whatsoever. And now we have the businessman and the Democratic Party just to run against the Republican. And that's it. Well, I, 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 that's not the way I see it. Uh, I think that's a fair assessment of a pretty sizable segment of the population. Here's, here's where, of course, you know me, my thinking is way outside the box on this. Oh, yeah, there is no box where you're at. <laughs> I'm in a box of my own. <laughs> um, more like a straitjacket. Um, <laughs> here's the thing as I see it, 
Sand and Chris Hedges in his writing, and you know I'm a huge fan of his. He's made the yes. point repeatedly: Sanders is not a far left radical liberal type. Oh, On the historical political spectrum, he's a fairly moderate New Deal Democrat. Uh, the only like reason today, he though. seems like such an extreme progressive or an extreme radical liberal is because the whole political system has moved so far to the right in the last 20 years or more. I mean, it's like if everybody, well, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for a good metaphor, so I'll move on. But the whole system, the Republican Party went so far to the right that Genghis Khan is liberal compared to them. No, I, I and, understand. It's, it's causing more of a outside the standard deviation when he used to be exactly, more of a standard deviation. Exactly. He, he's become an outlier yeah. when what he is used to be fairly mainstream centrist Democrat. But here's where now here's where I'm bringing my own perspective into this. Uh, I'm working on a blog post right now that'll probably show up by the weekend. Um, Mr. Fish did a great little cartoon with, that has like an empty toilet roll paper, mm -hmm. car, cardboard tube on the roll, and yeah. it's got a little tiny strip of red paper and a little tiny strip of blue paper. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the that's the election, you know. Both yeah. parties have been used basically to wipe the ass of the elite. Is the implicit message. And that's, I, here's the way I see the, the leading candidates right now. Biden is mentally a reincarnated Reagan. I mean, he's, he's not altogether there mentally anyway. Okay? He's just not all there. I don't know why, I just don't uh, think he's all there. He's kind of like a Reagan in that sense. Um, okay. Bloomberg, I think, was a uh, what's what in thoroughbred racing terms is called a Sandy. He's brought in to race, but he ain't there to win. He was brought in to funnel money because okay. he could come in and say, "I'm paying for this campaign myself," while under the table, he's given five hundred million dollars to spend on his campaign and rake fifty off the top for doing the, doing the favor to the party. That's more like the deal I think took place there. I don't think there was any game or competition for what was no, going on. No, I get that. I, I, I guess I wasn't necessarily saying there was a game. I'm just saying that's what it seems like to me. That's well, how it's it a circus. So it's going to yeah. feel like a game the whole time. The sleazy yeah. part at the circus, right, always takes place on the midway. What <laughs> I'm saying is this was a midway deal, big bucks, where the fascist capitalist elite, the 1% oligarchy and corporatocracy, said... We need to pour money in there to stop Sanders. How can we do that? Well, one thing we can do is run a Sandy candidate in there who isn't there to win, and we just funnel money through that candidate. What do we need? We need somebody that's a billionaire with a lot of money that they say they spend out of pocket. We just put that money in his pocket. He spends it, and he gets to keep 10 or 20% off the top for letting us do that. See what I mean? Okay. Yeah. To me, that makes a lot that to me, that's an Occam's razor explanation of Bloomberg. It's the simplest explanation. With okay. the least metaphysical assumptions, right? Yeah. Buttigieg, right, who is who is in there's good reason to suspect that Buttigieg was a CIA spook. You know, I didn't hear about that name until today when I read an article saying that he supports 
Biden. That's it. Well, he he just slipped over to Biden. He just withdrew from the race like early Tuesday. That shows how disconnected I am, though. I didn't even know he was a person. Oh, well, nobody did either. You know what his political experience is? His his public visible political experience? He was mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Okay. In the resume. I mean, that's it. There's nothing else on his overt public resume. However, he was in the military and he was associated with CIA operations in the military in the Mideast. So I have a okay. feeling there's a, there's a, it wouldn't be a long shot bet to say that he was a CIA spook on the inside of the Democratic operations. Okay. So now we come to the other part of the story and another part of the story, which is the debacle that took place in Iowa. Did, did you catch any of that? Um, there's a cactus somewhere there, right? <laughs> The Iowa had had a caucus, they did, which is yes. kind of like a primary. And a, a former Hillary Clinton campaign manager owns a software company. And it screwed up, didn't it? Yes. And her husband uh, was Buddha Judge's campaign manager or something. But in any case, the software that they used to gather and calculate and tally up the caucus votes blew up, supposedly. And they were like 36 hours before we knew the results of that caucus. Huh. I mean, it was, okay. it was an abs, it was like, you, I don't know, you probably, you're probably too young to remember this, but back way back in the Bush days, there was a, Florida was a, the pivotal state and there were the hanging chads does that ring a bell? So I'm older than you may think. <laughs> um, yes, I'm <laughs> familiar with the Bush administration. Right. But do you remember the hanging chads? Yes. Uh, okay, I remember good. the fiasco all of all Florida. First two was they had to end up, they ended up having to do a manual count and they had to look at each punched card because they were using punched cards to tally the vote. And they had to look at each punched card. And there were little pieces where the punches occurred that might have fallen not quite all the way out. So is that a vote or not? The hanging Chad mystery. <laughs> so this was every bit as big a debacle or worse than the hanging Chad mystery from the Bush election. I think it was the first Bush election. I, I, I'd maybe say this one seems like it should be worse simply because technology has come so far since then. Exactly. It's come so far that it, it makes the process, if it's done right, it makes the process quite secure, rigorous, and trustworthy. But for every secure, rigorous, and trustworthy process, there's an underbelly that's exactly the opposite. <laughs> maybe maybe it's just me, but I don't feel trustworthy as something I want to give technology that decides things. Well, that's kind of my point. It's, 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 it's technology is an instrument or a tool. Yeah, and you can use any instrument or any tool for noble or nefarious purposes. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay. So anyway, to kind of maybe move us in a direction toward closure on this particular side of the discussion, um, it's going to be interesting to see. I think the Sanders campaign took a significant hit here. I am a Sanders supporter. Yeah, um, you are. That, that was my primary vote by mail, and I support his campaign. Uh, I know all you got to do is read my Facebook post or my blog and see that's right out there in, in your face. You know, I mean, I don't pull any punches with it. 
As a footnote, yeah, as a closing comment, one of the things that I have absolutely almost zero tolerance for is people who will make the art try to make the argument that, well, whatever you do, make sure you vote no matter who you vote for. If you if, if Sanders isn't on the ballot, you should still vote for whoever is on the ballot. Or you should vote for Trump in a, as a retaliation against the Democratic Party. You know, I do not take that bait. I absolutely do not take that bait. And here's why. As I see it, the ticket, if Sanders isn't on the ballot in November, <clears throat> we're facing what's called a Hobson's choice. You know what that is? No, I don't. It, you should. It's a logical concept, and it's very helpful because that's exactly where we're going to be. I'll give you a really simple metaphor. Let's say that two street thugs take you prisoner. And one of them is wearing a red handkerchief over his face, and the other one is wearing a blue handkerchief over his face. You get the red-blue connection here, Democrat-Republican, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. All right, they take you into a warehouse, and they straight classic thriller scene. You're duct taped and handcuffed and roped into a chair. And one of them pulls out a 45 and puts it up to your head. The other one pulls out a nine millimeter and puts it up to your head. It says, which trigger do you want us to pull? That's a Hobson's choice. <laughs> it doesn't matter which trigger they pull. The outcome is the same. You really only have one choice. Okay. See what I'm saying? Yeah, in a real Hobson's choice, you do have a second choice. And that is to not do anything. See what I mean? Yeah. That's to just abstain. Well, when people are trying to make this just ridiculous Hobson's choice argument, if you look at the election without Sanders in it, we are in a Hobson's choice because both candidates, Trump clearly, and I think equally clearly, clearly, whoever the Democratic candidate turns out to be, like Biden, let's say that he ends up being the, the top of the ticket for the presidential office, that's a Hobson's choice. You're getting a fascist capitalist either way. Yeah. And the only thing you can do, the only rational choice in a Hobson's choice, when you find the, the choice being presented to be nefarious, malevolent, or otherwise unacceptable, the only rational choice is to not make a choice abstain from the vote. Now, you probably don't agree with that. And believe me, I know I'm in a very small minority, but I'm not the only person that thinks like this. I don't know. I'm not there, saying I disagree with you. If I'm it's a Hobson's that. choice, that's the only rational option. And I believe this election is a Hobson's choice. In fact, in fact, I believe we haven't had anything but Hobson's choices since at least the middle of the 20th century, if not so, much longer. Do you think Sanders will make it to the ballot? I continue to support him. And I'm, you know me, I'm not a hopeful person. Uh, we were watching Downton Abbey tonight, and there's a great line that, did you watch Downton Abbey? No, not. Uh, one of the top characters is Dame Maggie Smith, the actress. Yeah. She plays the Dowager Countess. And she's got the best lines in the entire show. And one of them tonight was... Um, Hope is a tease to keep us from accepting reality. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I, that's kind of where I come from. You know, I'm, I'm never an optimist and I'm rarely hopeful. So, yes, I support the Sanders campaign on principle. But here I go with Hedges, who quotes Sartre by saying, 
I don't fight fascism because I expect to win. I fight fascism because it's fascism. Fair enough. So, Warren, is she even in the in the game at this point? Marginally, uh, I don't think so. I, I I haven't looked at the results for a while. She may have dropped out too because now, see, the whole purpose they've had. I think the primary purpose for having that such so many candidates in the Democratic pool, because it splits the vote. It divides up the vote. And if they successfully, here's, here's the catch. If they successfully keep Sanders from getting the 1,991 votes that would guarantee he was on the ballot as the presidential candidate, they go into what's called a brokered convention. And in a brokered convention, there are these people called superdelegates Mm-hmm. And they carry a third of the votes. And so they can swing the election one way or the other. And they are Democratic meat puppet establishment votes. So if it goes to a broker, I don't think Sanders will make it to the ballot. I, even now, I think he's a long shot. Okay. All right. But well, I mean, simply because you cannot overestimate the lengths to which the fascist capitalist cabal and corporatocracy will go to keep Sanders out of the office. Uh, you can't overestimate. In a, in a in a blog post earlier today, I think I likened it to a game of chess because I'm seeing all these people, we're going to win, we're going to change the world, even if Sanders, you know, all this hopeful opium. Um, and I'm listening to this and watching this just rolling across my screen, you know, and I said, look, you got to understand that there's a there's a worldview where this election for the presidential office for 2020 is one blip on one radar screen and a control tower of a thousand radar screens. And that control tower is one of a thousand control towers around the world. It's a blip on one radar screen from the fascist, capitalist, globalist, neoliberal tyranny that's running the world, it's one blip on one radar screen. And if it gets a little too far out of the course it's supposed to be on, just like any air traffic controller, if they have to blow it out of the sky, they'll do it. And it let's say that, and this is just wild speculation, let's say that Sanders was slipped a Mickey at a convention backroom meeting that gave him a heart attack and killed him. Covert assassination, in other words. Let's just hypothetically say that something like that happened. The the Sanders supporters would be just rabid with fury. But that would last about two weeks in the news cycle at most. There would be all kinds of bemoaning the tragedy and all kinds of what, and a lot of paranoid conspiracy theories would come out, of course, but those never get past the margins. And, and there would be a one or two week news cycle of bemoaning the tragedy, decrying the loss, what a great president he would have made, it's a shame he didn't get a fair race, blah, blah, blah. And a permanent lie would work its way as a tattoo in the, the common psyche of the American mentality, and it would disappear into history within a month. I, I guess I agree with that. That makes sense. So, okay, so, you know, I don't have much hope that he's going to get there because if he really was going to, there's no links to which the fascist capitalist tyranny wouldn't go to keep it from happening. I could. There's a caveat there. They may have a plan D 
that would say, all right, if, if he gets in, we managed to deal with Trump. See, Trump caught him not looking the same way Sanders has. He tapped into a populist mentality that they didn't know about, that they hadn't acknowledged. And it pretty much, they couldn't move fast enough to keep from having to put him in office. They couldn't come up with a viable alternative candidate. Uh, they tried Mitt Romney. They tried, I don't remember who all else, but they just could not come up with a viable alternative candidate. And he ended up with so much of a popular vote that he ended up getting the, the votes needed to get the, get the candidacy. Then he got elected. And now they're yeah. really backed into a corner. But they've managed, he's so easy to control. I mean, his base is the same 1% cabal plutocracy of power and wealth as it is for the Democrats. So now we've got Sanders doing the same thing from the other, quote, end of the political spectrum that Trump did from his end of the political spectrum in 2016. So, I, you know, it's, it's but, but they will do anything to keep Sanders, I think, from getting into office. They may have a plan B or even further down the list. Well, if he does, we have a way to handle it, you know, whether it's something like a covert assassination, which is extreme, of course. And again, I'm speaking hypothetically, or it's just a matter of systematically taking the the House and the Senate so that he's a lame duck, right? If he's in the, if he's in the Oval Office, but the representatives are all Republicans and the Democrat the Senate is all Republicans, he ain't going to get anything done. That's true. So they may have, you know, what I might call in their terms, gentler plans <laughs> to deal with him if he actually got on the ballot and won the race. But I still say that's a dark horse long shot, single digit percentages. Now, so I know you're I know you're a Sanders fan, and I know in the past the I've expressed myself not necessarily being a Sanders fan. And Maybe I need to clarify why, because I think there's been some confusion on that part. Okay. Um, so let's say I have to look between Trump and Sanders, okay? I have to balance me for what I want. What I Then the second part is, what do I think is best for America? And then the third part is, what do I think is best for the Jews, being Jewish? I, I, I need to consider that because... It has a huge impact. I mean, after Trump got into office, we had a rash of security issues and violent increase in anti-Semitism. And those are things that are concerning. And so between the two candidates of the things I like on their platform personally, I like Sanders best. Between the two candidates of what I think is best for America, I think is Sanders. Between the two candidates, what I think is best for the Jewish population, I think, is Trump. Not because Trump is out to make the Jewish vote his friend or anything like that, but because even despite the increase in anti-Semitism, his platform so far has supported the Jewish populace, I guess, at least from an Israel perspective and from an Orthodox perspective not necessarily a reform or conservative Jewish perspective. Whereas um, Bernie Sanders, he's, he has made it clear in how he's presented things that he thinks how Israel's doing things is wrong and that they need to be tried for war crimes. And 
that he's also he's never brought up the whole I'm Jewish thing until it benefited him when it comes to politics, which I think makes the Orthodox vote a little wary. Also, it's who his supporters are. And I'm not saying supporters like you and all these other individual people who give money to the campaign. I'm saying specifically four individuals who are politicians who have endorsed him. And I think you may know who I'm talking about. Well, no, give the names. I mean, I, I'm referring I to the squad. I, it's, uh, I'm trying to remember her last name, Omar. And I don't know how to pronounce it, Tlaib. But these individuals that are, I have, I've, I have a great respect for the Muslim community in America. I have concerns over these individuals, not because of any association with Palestine or Islam or anything like that, but because they have far too often lately done foot and mouth with anti-Semitic comments on a regular basis. Do you track with what I'm saying here? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of my concern is that they endorse dictators that are anti-Semitic. And I'm just concerned on that front is Bernie Sanders is Jewish. I get that. He, he may not be Orthodox, but he's still Jewish. And so these individuals who are known for saying things inflammatory regarding Jews are supporting him, which makes me pause and have concern. So I think that's my... That makes sense to me. It really does. That's my hesitation, is why are they supporting him? What's the bigger picture? What's the game? And again, the Jewish part is where I'm concerned with Sanders. I mean, as far as his platform, sure, get rid of my student loans. Sure, let's let's socialize some things and let's do the Robin Hood move. Let's take from the rich and give to the poor. And I, I believe in those things. And I... Christians call them mercy ministries. Um, and the Jewish term would be tikkun olam, the reparation of the world. We, we believe that we should do this as, as a religious imperative. And so I, I say, yeah, I support this as a political platform. I'm just hesitant on the Jewish end of it is where I'm at. And right now my hesitancy on the Jewish end is outweighing my, I think you can do this because I'm also concerned that he'll get into office and not be able to accomplish anything because he'll be locked out more or less. Uh, that's my concern too. Like I say, I think he's got a single digit percentage odds of making it to the ballot. And even if he makes it to the ballot about the same single digit percentage odds of winning the election. So I'm not hopeful by any stretch of the imagination. For me, it's entirely a matter of principle. And I, I do understand your concerns from the Jewish perspective because I, there are things about his comments about Palestine and his comments about um, other aspects of what's going on around the Gaza and the occupation and the conflict in general, territorial conflict in particular, but more generally the cultural conflict. And he's not clear about it. It isn't so much that I've found anything specific to object to. I haven't looked closely enough to find it. It's probably there. But the, his lack of clarity about it. Uh, well, I think his lack only of time, clarity. You're right. The only time he does bring it up is in a kind of pandering tone. 
Well, my, I had concerns with the comments regarding APAC even, but my, I guess my hesitation is that I think politicians need to be informed and knowledgeable. And I find myself blown away that there are so many American politicians that literally do not understand anything about the Middle East conflict whatsoever. We get what the news media is saying, and then we use it for politispeak, and we don't actually see what's really going on. Well, and I, I've said this with you before, Israel, the one thing they really suck at is marketing, and they really need to fix that, because, <laughs> I, yeah, they suck at it, and their neighbors don't suck at it, and as a result, we have a narrative here in America that is very inaccurate to what's actually going on. Well, consider, if I, if I can make a suggestion, consider who's controlling that narrative. You assume it's the marketing competition in the Mideast, right? I no, don't I don't think they're controlling it whatsoever. I think that it would help if Israel tried to be a bit more palatable with marketing. No, I mean, not Israel, but the other states opposing Israel, you're saying, yeah. do a better job of, of narrating, controlling the narrative. They do. And I'm not saying that that's what makes it over here just because of that. I'm just saying it makes it easier. It does make it easier. That's true, because it provides Al Jazeera, for instance, the news feed from I think they're where are they from? They're not Israel. They're no, Palestine. they're Arabic. Yeah, they're, they're, they're Arab. Yeah, it's a it's a Islamic news station and they do get censored by the Islamic government which I think is hilarious. Everybody here in America is like, oh, this is such a trustworthy news site. And I'm thinking, yeah, in a country that's a dictatorship and they control what they say. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because one of my favorite sources is uh, RT America. That's where a lot of Chris Hedges stuff shows up. And that's yeah. it's Russia. It's a Russian-sponsored medium. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Russia Today is what the RT stands for, RT America. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, Chris Hedges, Noam Chomsky, um, Spear, Robert Spear, I think, the people who show up on Truth Dig, man, they are clarion voices, and they're very clearly telling what I take to be the truth. But anyway, I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot and take you back to your blog, your blog post on Yidbrick about, um, let me get the title right here. America and civil religion. Yes. Let's cast this in that light and talk about it from that perspective, because there were things in there that I just, I'm going, exactly, man, right on, spot on, because the Super Bowl is more religious in America than than any churchianity that I've encountered, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, it's just such a farce. Um, so talk about the things we were just talking about in terms of the Jewish narrative and how that fits into what you write about in this America and the civil religion post. Yeah. So I guess I can give the um, context of I'm in a very unique position. I uh, observe Orthodox Judaism and I attended Portland Seminary, which is George Fox University. They are a, evangelical seminary that's where i got my doctor from you and i were part of that cohort together and we were under lead mentor dr leonard sweet who really pushes the line within christianity so here's a jew going to a christian college and trying to take this what i've learned on semiotics 
and how it applies in the bigger realm and bring it into a Jewish context. And that's where I ended up with his blog post and it ended up being rather, it wasn't very deep and I didn't want to go too deep because I feel like it's better conversation piece than it is just text to read on a website right. is the concept of the American civil religion. It's not my idea. It's, it's Dr. Sweet's idea. We learned this in one of our sessions with him when we had a face-to-face, he talked about the American civil religion and he gave examples of worship leaders and services and customs and traditions and all these things on how it lines up to the concept of a religion. And so I just kind of expounded on that, trying to use a bit of a Jewish lens and try to connect the two worlds. Because for Judaism, an Orthodox Jewish perspective is this. Orthodox Judaism is correct for the Jew. For the non-Jew, eh, as long as you know they believe there's a God and they only believe in one God, we'll assume it's the same God and we'll ignore the details. It doesn't matter so much. That's, that's the concept of Noachide, which is a non-Jew who follows the laws of Noah, the seven laws that were given to Noah, which is, you know, don't eat off of a living animal, no sexual immorality, set up a court system, believe that there is one God, the basic stuff, right? right? And so I argued in my dissertation on Jewish Christian religions, and my first draft argued it a lot more. My second draft did after reviewer number two, which is an actual trending hashtag on Facebook right now, um, <laughs> and ended up getting a massive rewrite and re- removing a lot of the Noahide content that I plan to come out with again and republish out there, which is that I, I contend, as well as orthodox opinions before me that I can rely on, that uh, from a Jewish perspective, from an orthodox Jewish perspective, Christianity is a Noahide faith, right? Um, but not the American civil religion. And the reason is because getting all the Jesus stuff aside and what is a Trinity and trying not to think too much and too deep. Does that mean a schizophrenic or does that mean three bodies or what? But it's, it's a monotheistic faith, but in America, the American civil religion is not monotheistic because there's so many idols that are worshiped. There's so many icons that are worshiped. And that's what makes it. The term I used was a votazaro, which means a prohibited service or forbidden service or a pagan religion or something like that, which is it's not okay. And that it's polytheistic. And that that's kind of where I tied in the Jewish concept there was bringing in the American civil religion, which I felt was very timely to deal with the Super Bowl because everybody was upset about the Super Bowl. And I'm like, well, no, the American religion has done this every year for decades. And so, 50 years. It, I mean, it's it's not that surprising to me if you consider it a worship service and the most basic, the most humanistic of worship things, like a pagan festival. You took the word right out of my mouth. I mean, I, as I think of it, it's a pagan ritual. It's what it is. You, 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 you're being, it's, it's pagan. There's, there's no other way to describe it. It's profane. It's focusing on the sexuality and the forbiddenness and really delving into that. And it's, it's as if they're the all violence. dancing naked in front of the moon. 
I mean, the game is the violence. I mean, that's why it's so much like it's pagan in the same sense that the gladiator battles in the Colosseum in ancient Rome were pagan. Yeah, definitely. And the gods, the gods, the one real, the real gods are in the commercials. Yeah. And then you have your temple prostitutes, which are up there singing and stripping. Yeah. Or cheering from the sidelines. That too. <laughs> I, I know not everybody likes looking at it this perspective, but I personally do feel that Americanism, American tribalism is toxic and not good for the world at large. Not good, especially for the environment and not healthy for anybody to be engaged in. It's a false god. It's a well, distraction. The point of the, the blog post that I'm working right now just resonates so strongly with, with what you're saying here because... Well, the title of it is Dystopian Dissonance. And the, the thrust of it is semiotic, of course, because yeah. I've been playing with the idea of semiotic engineering, which is okay. inseminating cognitive dissonance. That's what semiotic engineering does, is it inseminates your mind with dissonance. And it becomes a very tight feedback loop of cognition. It feeds on itself to the point where you cannot formulate a coherent thought that corresponds to the truth and reality of the situation you're in. That's why people cannot wrap their heads and minds and hearts around the fact that, and I love this line from Guy McPherson, uh, um, acceptance that abrupt change is bringing about near-term human extinction is optional. Participation is mandatory. Yeah. I really like that quote because you can choose not to believe it's going to happen, but you're going to be participating in it either way you take that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no matter uh, what you're a participant. That makes sense, whether or not you think yeah. you are. Yeah. You can choose to deny it right up to the point where you're boiling on the tarmac, <laughs> you know, or drowning in the coastal sea rise or whatever. But anyway... Yeah. That's from that perspective, the toxicity of the world we're in is not just in the United States. The toxicity is neoliberal fascist capitalism, and it runs the world. It runs every economy on the planet in the in the what's called the uh, LDCs, the least developed countries, the ones that aren't active members of the G7 and the G20. Right. Mm -hmm. The ones who don't go to Davos or have anybody in Davos, Switzerland the World Economic Forum, those least developed countries, there are garbage pits in our resource mines. Yeah. That's, that's all the purpose they serve, and they are there to be exploited to death. But here's the twist. It's really no different in America or England or Israel, for that matter, I would go so far as to say. It's really no different in any 21st century economic context. U.S. American fascist capitalism is the seminal driving force of that economy. And yeah. as long as the dollar remains the, pet, the, the global currency in petro markets and fossil fuel markets, as long as it's still the global currency, the primary currency of exchange, that's going to continue to be the case. That's one of the cornerstones that props up American capitalism, fascist capitalism, all around the world. Because if you want to trade internationally, you're going to be doing it in dollars. 
Yes, yeah, few companies have back, countries have backed out of that. Um, I can't think of them offhand, but there's two or three. I say, I want to say not Iraq, not it was maybe Iran. I don't know, but a couple of countries have backed out of it, and they just don't trade in dollars. They trade in their own currencies. Uh, China is a dangerous threat from that perspective because they hold so much American debt in bonds. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. But to your point about the toxicity, for me, we are mired in that kind of cognitive toxicity, dystopian yeah. dissonance, because we're being engineered to be there. So even if we, the news that we're being fed shapes the thoughts that we have to be anything but truth about reality. And going back to our cohort work together, my dissertation in, in mine, this part, that part of it that dealt with semiotic engineering, I make the point that there's not just, there's the famous left brain, right brain, you know, which is a metaphor. It's not really left and right. It's really sentient and sapient mentality. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. Your senses as the creative, intuitive, artistic side and your sapient, which is the logic, language, analytic side. Uh, the scientist lives in the sapient world. The artist lives in the sentient world, that kind of distinction. I made the case or tried to make the case, and I think I succeeded in the dissertation that we're overlooking the control mechanism that has that resonant harmony between those two modes of mentality, right? Mm -hmm. That sits in the corpus callosum, which connects the senses that come in through your central nervous system to the thoughts that occur in those two modes of your mind. We're going to hit pause right there, so tune into our next episode as we continue the conversation. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yidbrick and Semiocity that answers Semitic questions via Semioc analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin. <laughs>